Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I am Jake. And a special episode for you guys today. And I know I say that every single time, but it is it's truly due to our special guest. We have a special guest. I'm very honored to uh, to welcome Derek Bell on the podcast. He's best known as the consummate endurance sport car, sports car driver who won the Le Mans 24 Hours five times, the Daytona 24 Hours three times, and the World Sports Car Championship twice. He is considered to be the greatest British racing driver ever to compete in endurance racing and one of the greatest drivers of all time. Yeah. As we're, I'm, I'm really, you know, one of the things I don't really know is as a, as a Porsche enthusiast, you get really infatuated with, or many people get very infatuated with this period of time from, you know, uh, from the, in the eighties, like 81, 88, kind of in this, you know, this glory day of Porsche, obviously Porsche has had a lot of glory days, but they won Lamas so much in the eighties, like over and over and over again. That's seven years in yeah, a row. And, and Derek Bell and Jackie X were one of the main drivers for that period of time. So everybody right. gets like super myopic and focused on that very, <laughs> very special time. And they forget about the rest. So we're going to talk to Derek Bell about his history, where he started, how he got started racing. Um, he drove for Ferrari and Formula two and formula one. Yep. And it's just, as he goes through his history, there's just so much. Yeah. Yeah. I had to, it's amazing. Yeah. I had to stop myself many, many times of, of asking and interjecting and asking questions because I know that there's, there's just this huge broad library to talk about. And um, I really, really, Really enjoy the interview. I think you guys will too. And before we get to that, what have you got for us? Petrol Box is a monthly service. It's a subscription that comes to you every month just for car guys and car girls, the automotive enthusiasts in your life. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all the latest and greatest in the industry. They box it up and send it right to your doorstep every single month. Now, there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. So I was thinking about what it must be like to win over and over and over again. <laughs> like, do you get sick of winning? Do you get sick of Does winning? The but then I, wear out? then I hear, you know, I kind of drew this parallel between the guys that are like, well, yeah, even the even a guy that bangs supermodels twenty four seven is going to get tired of it someday. And I just go, no, <laughs> no, you absolutely would not get tired of that. You would never get tired of winning Lamar. You would never get tired of getting in these spectacular cars with these other spectacular drivers with these awesome teams. Well, what he mentioned too was driving to Lamar every year. He would think, I'm in the fastest cars that have ever existed and they're faster than they were last year. It's a great interview. We hope you guys will enjoy it. Welcome, Derek Bell. Mr. Derek Bell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you here. It's my pleasure, of course. You know, I always wonder what, uh, you know, we talk to a lot of race car drivers here and a lot of personalities, and we talk about all the cars that they used to drive on the track and everything like that, but I'm always kind of curious what everybody's driving right now. What's your daily driver? What does Derek Bell, legend of motorsport, drive every day? <laughs> um, well, I my favorite, I because I live in England and America, as you put, although I haven't been to England for nearly for since last Christmas, but normally I would be back in England, you know, all of the summer because that's where all the events are as far as I'm concerned. But um, right now here in warm, sunny Florida, um, I would be driving my ragtop Jeep, which I've had since 1994. My Jeep Wrangler, it's pale blue with the sort of white, you know, the white tonneau, the white cover. I love it. 
and everybody sees it and says, oh, my goodness, what a wonderful car. And I tell them I had it since it was new. And they go, no, really? <laughs> I love it. It's in it's that sort of turquoise, like greeny color, very rare. And I love it. Uh, we also have a Porsche Macan S, which my wife um, suddenly or seems to use a lot. But that actually is our car. But I, I have to call it hers. That's what Jake drives. That's his. I have that's, a, uh, yeah, I also have a Porsche Macan, the turbo. Oh, good. I don't, we don't have the turbo here, but it's uh, kind they of are very nice cars. Yeah, they are fantastic. So you said that you, you know, you live in England sometimes. Obviously, we can hear from yes. your accent that you're from England, but where did you grow up as a young boy? Where was the, where was the start well, of Derek Bell? Well, I, well, I grew up in where I live in England now, in Sussex, England, from the age of eight or nine. And living on a farm because my, the, war, the war was over and my parents split up and I ended up living with another family initially. And then my mother, 20 years later, married the, uh, the gentleman that became my stepfather. And, the, uh, and, and with, between us, we were five kids. I was the oldest and my sister was the youngest. And then we had three which were from my stepfather's side of his family. So it's two families, the Bells and the, and the, and the Henders joined together. And we were all within a year, you know, a year apart. So over five years, there were five kids. So it made us all very close, and it was fun. So we're very close today. Did you? And we always lived. We all sorry. We always lived in the same place in Pagham on the farm, and um, you know that's where I first drove, aged eight or nine. So did you? You grew up on the farm, or did you? Were you kind of like a farmhand, or did you spend you know most of your time working there? Yeah. Well, I mean, my my stepfather was was a farmer, and farmers. If if you're involved with them or, you know, you're the son of one, I quickly found that I was meant to work all the time. And all I really wanted to do was drive the tractors and Jeeps, not because it stopped <laughs> me, you know, being in the fields, you know, sort of digging holes or or, or uh, hoeing sugar beet or something. The fact that I just wanted to drive and it was something innate in me that wanted me to drive. So from the age of eight or nine, I was driving tractors and we had a Willys Jeep and that sort of thing on the farm. And I drove everything that moved, really, all the, all the way through until, you know, I sort of got my license at age 17 and then had my own car then. And then, of course, went into racing. What into, was that car? What was, what was that car that you got, your first car? My very first car was a Ford 10, um, which was, a, what because in the old days, it was obviously a right-hand drive, a two-door thing that my parents bought for £100. But, on, of course, going back, that must have been a lot of money. But I certainly did have £100. So they bought it, but I managed to invert it into a wall of a church one night, leaving a pub. So that was the end of that. <laughs> but um, as always, there was an excuse for it. But no, I just I hit the wall upside down. Or actually on its side, that had to come up like out of a submarine, you open the hatch door and come out. Um, didn't do it much good. So we stuck that in a hole on the farm and sort of filled it in with the earth. And it's still there today, as far as I know. It might be interesting. And then I got another car. See, wonderful. If they, see if it's still yeah, well, there. My, my parents said, you're on your own now. We're not buying another car. So I actually, I remember it was 37 pounds. I bought at Morris. It was a very pretty car. And uh, I had that and went to college with that. And it was, ju it was just fun. I mean, it was just great. And, uh, but of course that, that lasted the whole time I sold it for the same sort of money I paid for it. And then I went to college, you know, all this time I've been working on the farm physically and also obviously dry, uh, you know, plowing and doing all the work. But we had 600 acres. So, you know, we had several guys working there. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot of bad language. And of course, Goodwood 
racetrack was only five miles away as the crow flies up on top of the Sussex Downs. I was down by the sea near uh, south of Chichester. And I could hear the cars go around Goodwood on it when they were testing up there during the week. And, uh, you know, of course, because I was so keen, I'd been going to Goodwood since I was to watch since I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. My stepfather was very keen on racing. So he took me all over the place. And in fact, when I was only 14, and now I lie there, sorry, I would have been 18, wouldn't I? Uh, we went to see the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. And that was when we sat in the grandstands and watched the Italian Grand Prix. Did you fly there or drive there? How did you? No, we drove. We drove down. We drove down. He had an XK150. He invariably had nice cars. My stepfather, bless him. And um, and I remember we stopped for lunch and we had. He also had a glass of red wine and he said, "You can drive." And I remember. I mean, I'd driven the car. I used to drive it quite a lot. He didn't know that, but back in England. <laughs> and um, so. I remember he, he said, oh, you can drive now. So I drove on after lunch and you could see him falling asleep. And, and I guess he felt the car going faster and faster. And I was doing sort of 130 on these beautiful French roads. And suddenly his hand came out and whacked me on the leg. And said, That's enough. You know? <laughs> but that was it. And because I went to Monza to the Italian Grand Prix and uh, Galifian Ford, and, and that year was 1969. And lo and behind, little knowing and looking on that grid that nine years later, I'd be sitting on that grid in a Formula One Ferrari. So how did you get there? How did you make the leap from just, you know, an onlooker to to getting in a a race car? How did you get there? Well, I mean, obviously, that's a different story, which I'll get into. But, you know, only about in the last few years that I realized that I was at Monza watching that Grand Prix watching a Grand Prix in 58 with Sterling Moss and the likes of him and little and, and not knowing, imagining, I'd even dream that I'd be sitting on the grid in a Ferrari and right in front of where I was actually sitting. I mean, it was just, you know, watching the race. Anyway, that was obviously I was eight years off of 20. Uh, I was what, I was 27. So I was 19 at that point, 18 when I went to the race. And in the meantime, I hadn't, I'd always thought about going to a racing driver's school if I could, but we didn't have money. I mean, it sounds like the old man had this nice Jag, but it wasn't a Ferrari. It was a Jag, you know, it was, it was much cheaper. And he wasn't, he wouldn't squander his money on, on sort of getting a Ferrari, even if he wanted to. I never mentioned he liked one, really. Even when I had one, I don't think he ever drove it. But um, so anyway, um, I sort of, during a period of over two years, I went to the, I think I was at college, or Sarancest, the Royal Agricultural uh, University in England. And um, I was only there a year, but during that time started to go to the Jim Russell Driving School, which was from my home was 170 miles away. And I only had an old banger of a car, uh, which is neither of the cars I mentioned to just now, because <laughs> it was a little bit later on. And I, I, I destroyed those two. And I was not, we, and I had this beautiful old Ford, this was another Ford, a Ford 10 convertible. Very rare. I've never seen one from that day to this. In fact, that one's under a field on the farm as well. <laughs> but not, not because I destroyed it, but it just sort of, it, it, we drove it to the south of France one year just to, on a, when I was on a working holiday for, for a month. So all those things I did before I was like 23. At, but also going to driving, to racing driving school, and I didn't have the money to, to go through school in, in the way one would like to. I mean, nowadays you sort of go along for three days and pay three or $4,000 and you come out the other end with a bit of paper. In my day, you sort of, you had to go for 
a test and they checked out whether you're really going to be, they thought you're worthy of taking it. I think they took everybody because it was a dollar, it was a, you know, it was money they earned. Right. And I, and, and, and but the Jim Russell school was in Norfolk. His was, the, I believe, the first racing school ever in the, in the world in 1960, what would that be, 63? And of two, even, well, I'd be actually 1960. Yes, 1960. And um, I, I, anyway, I did, we did an interview with those driving schools in America because I wasn't going to be going to one there. I was going to be going in England. And it was the only one that was around. And um, anyway, one day I sort of, I went to probably about eight times. I didn't have enough money. I couldn't go every week. I couldn't go every month, maybe once every two months and went and spent my 10 pounds because I was only earning 20 pounds a week, at, you know, running the farm. So I didn't have enough money to spend you know, liberally on, on driving. And then one day Jim said, who was driving that car there? And there was about eight cars. And I, and I just got out of it. And I said, well, I was, and I really thought he was going to jump on my head and sort of say, you were driving so stupid. That was crazy. And, Cause I've never heard him saying anything good about anybody. <laughs> and in front of the other, the other kids, so he gets 10, eight or 10 or 12 of them. He just completely sort of went balmy about how good he thought I was. And I couldn't believe it. And he said, finally he said, it, he said, I guarantee within a year you'll be in a factory team. And I, I mean, I had no idea at all. Nobody really told me what to do. I just drove around and Jim would go out and watch and say, will you? And then he would show us the lines would get in his big American. Well, it wasn't, it, would, it was Vauxhall, which is General Motors, but his, his Vauxhall car. And he would take three of us around and drive around on the right lines around Snetterton and then drive around on the wrong lines and just show you the difference of what difference it made on the way you entered and the way which apex you got, even which angle you came at it at. And I learned, I mean, I only went in the car with him probably twice. But, um, and nobody ever said, told me what to do that I remember. I don't remember him saying, well, you're doing it wrong. I mean, they just watched and then they saw you go a bit faster. So you started off doing a corner and having done the seven or eight corners over a period of like two months. Um, that's walking through it, then driving through it back, driving through it again and back and so on and so forth. That was your morning. And then you drive another corner in the afternoon. So what you're saying is um, you didn't, you at four years old, someone didn't shove you into a cart and give you, no, you know, no, $500,000 and send you on your way. No, no, I, no. And so <laughs> anyway, that was it. And then eventually, um, as I say, after that day, he, he said, look, go and do another 10 laps. And so I thought he might give me 10 laps, the bastard. And I went out and sort of did what I could and, and did the same thing again. And he, he just called me over and that's when he told me, he said, I guarantee you'll be in a factory team. Actually, I can do nothing more for you, which was amazing because I hadn't completed the course. I'd only got like up to running at 7,000 revs and we would run on another 2,000 up to eight, or well, up to seven, five and then 8,000 before the course was over. Anyway, that was, that was, but each time you did, it cost you a pound a lap, which is ridiculous. That was $1.25 a lap. For three miles, it was just—it was really good money when you think about it today. Right. And so I went home and told my stepfather, you know, uh, you know, he said, "How did you get on?" And I told him, and he just said, "He said, I, I, you know." And then Jim, that's right. Jim said to me, "He said, is there anybody can help you?" I said, "Well, my stepfather can help me, but I said I don't know if he will." And I said, "You know, you could, he said you need somebody with money to support you." I said, "Well, I understand because you need to get into that factory team." And I went back and told my stepfather and he just put his newspaper down because he was interested. And, and he said to me, he said, you prove to me you've got the ability and I will help you. So I went off with, and, and a year later, I did nothing. Yeah, obviously apart from working on the farm because I didn't know what to do. I mean, I couldn't go out and raise money. What the hell was I going to raise money earning 20 pounds a week? And about a year or 18 months later, a guy called John Penfold comes along and he says, 
you know, let's let me talk about where we, what we've done in our lives so far. And he's still my best friend today, and I speak with him sort of every week, some at some point back in England. And um, he, he said, "Come on, I want, I want to, you know, I'd like to go racing." So we could, we agreed to buy a load, build a Lotus Seven. So we did that, and on March the thirteenth, nineteen sixty-four, I went out at Goodwood in the pissing rain, and I won the, my first race. So that was the beginning. And then four years later, I'm at Ferrari, which was quite. Uh, remarkable when I think about it all the time I thought it was a bit slow in getting there but you know I, re I realized very quickly that experience is what it's all around about and you can see that when you watch drivers they get to the upper echelons of racing um, too quickly and I, I felt I went to Ferrari too soon really but I still learned a hell of a lot who are you, you know, who are your that. heroes back then as you look back to when you were racing that Lotus 7 and and going to Goodwood and stuff like that who were, who did you look up um, to and model yourself after well, I always model myself on Sterling Moss because he drove at Goodwood. I used to be, I never told you this, obviously you didn't ask me everything about me, but I used to be a corner worker or a marshal, as we call them in England. You call them corner workers. And I used to go up with my local driving, local motor, motor club, motoring club called the Bogner Motoring Club and then Chichester Motoring Club. And I used to go up with them when there were races on at Goodwood and, you know, we'd stand on a corner somewhere behind a, a load of bales waving yellow and blue flags or whatever it necessary and i was actually there marshalling on easter monday 1962 when sterling had his massive crash and that put him out of racing forever basically and um you know i was there and i met him that day before sometime before the race but that was sort of another story so you know he was my hero always my childhood hero he was my hero when i was at school i remember i used to listen to lamar my called it in those days you would know all this stuff that's the trouble i talk about it and you guys go what the hell's he on about but we had crystal rate <laughs> had a thing called a crystal radio and um you know you could sort of it was a, actually it, you know it was about it was quite it wasn't that big but it's like a, a size of a novel i guess but but sort of squarer or sort of more rectangular probably sort of higher it was double the thickness about three inches by eight inches right ten inches long and uh, you know you could you switch you know you could have it in your bedroom or you, I mean you shouldn't do it at school I was at boarding school, and um, you know I used to listen to Lamar and other big other big events like that. But I used to follow Sterling, and of course when he crashed that sort of you know was I was very upset about that, but I still kept marshalling at Goodwood and then and really until the day that I started racing. So or, well, you, you know, mentioned. You mentioned going into Ferrari, and it's one thing yes. that some people overlook because they get so obsessed, right? They get so obsessed with Porsche and, and, yep. your, and your career with Porsche. But because of yes. your uh, uh, some of the success you had early on, Ferrari took notice to you. Tell us about your first go with Ferrari at Modena. I'd done formless. I did really well. I had the Lotus 7. Then I went into my, my partner, John. He convinced my stepfather that he should help support us the next year, but should help support me. My pal wanted to go off and get married. And um, so we, we ended up creating our own team. And uh, we went into Formula 3, but it was an old Formula 3 car. We had, I won my first race, I won my second and third race in a set, you know, what you call a second rate car, uh, but not at the top level, but it's still on the It's club racing when the whole thing then is about club racing. And then the next year I went up and saw more into the big time. And then I won sort of 10 of the of the 16 races in Europe or nine, do you know, I really can't remember, nine or 10 in the European Championship, basically the World Championship of Formula 3. And, you know, I raced at Monaco and all the places that you read that all the top drivers today went to first. You know, we all went through Monaco Formula 3, which is a support race for the Grand Prix. I finished third there. 
behind the factory mattress. This is with our own car. And so that was the beginning. And then from that, it was, oh, well, what are you going to do now? You've been in Formula 3 for two and a half years. You've got to get and Lotus 7 before that. You've got to get out. I, it was my thing. Nobody to guide me. It was purely my own, uh, you know, what I, I could do. The old man was, was of course, was helping me because he was coming to all, my stepfather, that is. He was coming to all the races. He loved it. It was his passion. And so we had a, a marvelous time. And it we weren't spending a fortune because racing didn't cost a fortune then. It would if you start to crash. <laughs> and I learned quickly not to crash too much. And yeah, you don't want to have to start burying race cars out by the barn. <laughs> no, exactly. No, there's lots of paths. So anyway, that was it. And um, and then uh, so the only way was to go up to Formula Two. So and I've seen another driver called um, it doesn't matter quite now. Anyway, I think anyway he went up to Formula Two. Robin Widows, and he went up to F2, and I could see him driving in this Brabham, and he was up there in the top eight or ten cars. I'm going blind. I'd rather be up there doing that in Formula 2 than in the top three or four in Formula 3. And if you stay in the Formula 2 long, I quickly realized that you get typecast and people expect you to do better than you did the year before. It's not always possible because somebody produces an engine that's five horsepower more and you're in the, you've got the wrong engine. You're not going to win because five horsepower when you've got 100 you know, makes a hell of a lot of difference. Right. So I, I, we went up to Formula 2 and the old man helped me. It's another story. We went to the bank and borrowed the money, and we got ten thousand pounds. And from the bank, although you know we have the farmers' security, so they're never going to get off with it. But farmers don't really have cash; it's all, you know, property. Right. And um, so we borrowed the money, and we went out and we bought. We ordered a brand new Brabham for two and a half thousand pounds, and 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 two Cosworth engines for another two and a half thousand pounds each for the what they called FVA, to the the one point six liters. And a, and a, a truck and a, or a, a, an open, a sort of a small van and a trailer, and that's how we went off racing. And I had a couple of good races to start with. Did you take care of the cars was, yourself, or was it you and your stepdad yes, taking yeah, care of yeah. them? No, well, not I worked on them. Yes, with, okay. with George, but just one mechanic. Yeah, my stepfather wouldn't have worked on them. Never ever know. I mean, he might clean a wheel or something if we needed <laughs> it, but but no, he was just a he was just a wonderful man that enjoyed the atmosphere, got to know people, would walk around and observe. He was very much a voyeur, if you understand what I mean. And uh, he, he was a brilliant, an excellent driver himself. Loved good cars, um, but actually, you know, never raced. And although he did a couple of rallies, had the hell of it with friends, you know. So anyway, uh, he supported me going into that year. And I'd say after three, three races, I was doing pretty well. And then I was in that race at Hockenheim when the, my other hero, who then became my racing hero, Jim Clark, he actually got killed in my first race in Europe. And that's in Formula 2, and that shattered me, really, because uh, people used to keep saying, well, people in those days thought motor racing was dangerous. And, of course, they were totally right. And they also felt that all the drivers and people in racing were playboys, which I think in several main ways they were. But the top guys weren't. The top guys were genuinely bloody good. Um, but there were a lot of, thank goodness, playboys or people with lots of money that could afford to have cars or enter cars or enter them and drive themselves in the various formula. And um, and so I I was at, so after that race where I was ahead of Jim Clark believe it or not uh, before he had his incident and ahead of him in qualifying, um, which is again another story when because we were at the same hotel and he and I had tea together with with Graham Hill and we chatted and Jimmy had a problem with his car and he told me not to when I went up to overtake it or lap him the next day because it was piddling with rain the whole time he said to me don't get too close in case I have the problem with my engine. 
which I believe is the reason that he actually spun off the track anyway, because where he went off, he wouldn't have gone off normally unless something had stopped the wheels turning very quickly. So um, that was it. Jimmy died. And, the, and, and so to get to the next, your question is, how did I get to Ferrari? But in the ensuing three weeks from that, um, I had Co Cooper Car Company onto me to drive their Formula One Cooper Maserati. I, I, Colin Chapman had asked me to drive his SDP Indy Turbine or talk to me about it. And in fact, I did sit in it t at, at Silverstone, but never drove it because the other car broke down. The transmission went, Graham Hill's car. So I got out, but I was in it, which was the biggest surprise of my life that I was even getting in it. And then the other person was, the other was Ferrari. I wanted me to drive in F2 initially. And then there was uh, John Y who asked me to drive the, the, uh, the GT40 at Le Mans, which of course followed up from, you know, the, the blue and orange car from the, um, you know, the, uh, what do you call it? Ferrari versus Ford versus Ferrari film. That, yeah. that car. So anyway, and suddenly I was sort of in demand. And although I only, it took me years to realize I must have been in demand, not some pure luck or bad luck. It was just, there weren't too many other drivers with the, looked like they had some talent or were, I don't know what it was. How did Whatever you make that was, choice between racing well, for I, Ford at I mean, Le Mans was, and then I, Ferrari? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was it was amazing, really, because I I had no man. I had my dear stepfather by then. He sort of stepped back, um, although he still ran the Formula Two car, and we had another driver in it for the whole of the year. Um, but um, basically, um, it was down to me. I had to make my own decisions, and you know, in the, it never crossed my mind that one would have a manager. But of course, one when you look at it now, everybody had managers and advisors and. God knows what else. You see them all traipsing around with the drivers these days, uh, which is fine because I guess they're earning enough money to pay them. But, of course, in those days, we did it for the passion, the love of it. And if you got paid as well, it was pretty good. But I never earned a penny until I went to Ferrari. And then it wasn't very much. I got £500 for a Grand Prix and 250 for a Formula 2 race. And I think 500 for Le Mans, but I don't remember what he paid me there. But that was what it was like. Um, but you didn't do it for the money. You did it, you know, for the glory uh, of driving the most beautiful cars and fastest cars in the world, and also satisfying your sort of passion, really. So I, to make my, had I made my mind up, obviously uh, the John Wire thing, Mr. Ferrari. Well, that came actually as I signed for Ferrari. I got the call to do them all, but that was all within a month. But basically, I, I kept, I'd had a test drive at Silverstone in the, in the Maserati, the Cooper Maserati. It really was pretty awful. Uh, but they were offering me Formula One, whereas Ferrari, the next day when I got to Maranello, they were talking about, you know, me uh, driving Formula Two. And then if I did well enough, I'd be in Formula One. But remember, it was middle of the season and they already had two drivers at X and Amon. And they weren't about to put me in an F1 car unless they were allowed to run three. And it really depended whether I was good enough. And there'd been other drivers before me that Ferrari didn't put in a car because they, they not that year, but in that over that, that over that period. Uh, that never got in an F1, yet they had done testing. And they had driven probably in Formula 2. So anyway, that was the way that went. And uh, obviously the the Lotus thing was, was was another story, driving at Indy, that was another story. I didn't drive it because I never got to drive the car. And then the kid, the guy that drove it, this guy called Mike Pence, and uh, he, he got killed at uh, at Indy that year when the he hit the wall and the wheel hit him on the head. So, you know, so really my I, the only real option was Ferrari or Cooper. And it was bloody obvious I was going to go to Ferrari, although it was difficult because 
Cooper was off in Formula One, but it wasn't a good car. But then you don't know that it won't be good up the future. And then Ferrari were offering me Formula Two. But when you've been to the two factories, it was very obvious which one I was going to choose. So I went to, to Ferrari and uh, I did my test drive at Monza. And um, of course, it was after that, having done that test drive, that they were chasing me to, to, to sign a contract. And that's when I met Enzo, went out to lunch with him, as I did on many occasions, went out to dinner with him. And that's how my Ferrari drive started. What kind and of I did what, my, what kind of man sorry. was Enzo? Because we always everybody always talks like in in retrospect, a lot of people didn't know him. They have no idea. They always say he was just this grumpy old man that treated everybody poorly. Um, but from what I can no, read from what you said, that's not true. Well, he certainly didn't look. He, I mean, I heard this because I was doing an article for en, for Enzo magazine yesterday, uh, a, 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 a you know um, a Zoom. And of course, they said the same thing, and they said, "Oh, we spoke to several other drivers, and they all said bad things about Enzo." The difference is, I think I'm I'm a bit naive, or was certainly then, and I don't think people are bad unless it really affects me, and then I go, "Yeah, they are bad," and just because you read about it, that, that you know, we're all different personalities in this world, and I've no, I, I mean, I, I this told me yesterday that Mario thought the world of Enzo, and Andretti. Uh, but I know other ones, and I won't name them. That have, I've been in their company over the years, and they've all said, "What, what? You know, what an unpleasant, tricky man he was to deal with." Um, the old man wanted results. He didn't take you on because you had blonde hair. He took you on because you were quick. And I think he had a thing about a good thing about having a British drivers. Um, but I might be wrong. But he seemed to have a lot. You know, he had Mike. He had Mike Parks. He had um, he had uh, Mike Hawthorne. He had Peter Collins. And and uh, Sterling Moss really, and those sort of people. I, and I think he had, a, you know, he he liked our temperament. I think the British temperament um, goes down well generally with, um, you know, the Italians because the Italians get a little bit excited. <laughs> and I think I, I think they liked I think they liked us with a sort of rather boring um, uh, outgoingness. But you know, we're different in a car, of course. But he liked that anyway. And um, you know. I, I mean, he, they used to phone me up and say, you know, tonight you'll have dinner with El Comandatore. And I go, oh, Lord, I want to go out with Mike Parks and the boys and some girls, you know. And, um, you know, I, I, I did. But, of course, I'd also go out with the old man first. And he'd pick me up in a two plus two and he'd be sitting in there and, he's, you know, you call them, what do you call braces? Anyway, the braces thing to hold your trouser up to an Englishman. And... Um, so, of course, he'd be sitting in there, you know, in his in his suit with the jacket off and his braces, his, sh his shirt, obviously, with a tie on and his trout and, and, and in his braces. And then I'd get in the passion of the door at the hotel and the Real Vinny um, or the Regina Olga. There were two hotels in Marinello, um, in Modena, rather. And then, you, you know, off we'd go into the country to dinner. And the incredible thing about him with me was, I mean, literally, he would, um, he would actually... Um, when, when we got out of the car at the restaurant, he would get he would get out, I'd get out, walk around the pavement, and he sidewalk, and he had actually opened the door to let me in first. You know, it was astonishing, really. I mean, he he he, he really thought I was all right. <laughs> I think, I mean, Mario might have the same stories, but I I got on well with him. I think it's, I mean, Matt, he must have liked Mario because they won the bloody world championship. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, and, that'll uh, create a friendship right there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I never did much, but I think he thought I might. <laughs> Uh, um, so you raced at Le Mans for a Ferrari in in '69, and that the Ferrari yeah, 512 that, S. 
Go, go ahead. Yeah, but I'd left, I'd left them by then. That was the right. So you thing. came back and uh, and but that car was pretty special. It appeared in in the movie Le Mans, that Ferrari five twelve, yeah. correct? And yeah, you worked with Steve, yeah, you worked with Steve McQueen on it and on and off yeah. the set of the movie, and you lived with him at one point. That must have been an incredible point in your life. The last few weeks, we rented a house together with his family and my family. Previously, he stayed at the I think it was a Ricardo, which was like a lovely chateau in the country, and I rented somewhere a house for me and my family. And, um, you know, we, we had a wonderful few months. And from that time, you know, I was racing all around Europe in 19, by then it was 1970. I was out of my Ferrari contract, but of course I did do Le Mans for him, although I'd done Spa in the, in the yellow Ferrari 512 for Jack Swatters. And um, that was my first ever sports car drive. Can you imagine going to Spa on the old track, the eight mile track or whatever, seven mile track, in a bloody Ferrari, which you'd never sat in a big, you never sat in a sports car in your life. And there you are, thundering around Spa, a track it you'd never been around like the most dangerous track, probably because it's so fast. Um, and you know, you just get went on and did it because that's what you did in those days. And nobody really talks about what it would have been like. And I no good asking me because I, I can't really tell you, but <laughs> it's sort of it's amazing when you when as a driver you sort of sit there sometime like now looking up at a photo or two on the wall of my study and you look and you go bloody hell can you imagine i mean there's a 917 on the wall here and i went round spa in that car number 20 which was often buried the numbers but number 20 generally stayed it was 20 and 21 and in 20 and uh, i was driving number 20 at spa and i got pole position at 161 miles an hour on a public bloody highway around the mountain, you know. And, I think things no, have become too did. precious now. Everything is, everything's so precious and everybody's image is so yeah. important and everything else. And yeah. it just yeah. doesn't seem like anything like you're talking about is even remotely possible in today's there sport. Is, it's astonishing. I mean, again, I'm not belittling what a wonderful drive um, they did with the Porsche and that VW sort of car with God knows what power, thousand horsepower when they need it. And all the efforts they went to to do it you know, and they, they use, you know, drones and God knows what else to, to, to sort of telegraph figures to, the, to, the, to a satellite to tell the driver and send a message back to the driver on his dashboard whether he was going too fast or, as he entered corners around Nürburgring. And here we are at Spa. And I went around in a bloody car with the feet sticking out the front in a tubular chassis car in practice or in qualifying. But your qualifying was every day. You had three hours every day. Yeah, I did for all the races. Well, in the 917, set. you had a giant computer on the passenger seat that you had to, like, bonk to get it to so you could measure time. I mean, it's a completely different world. There's no drones. Uh, yeah, You've got, like, a computer from the 70s to figure out how fast you're going. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and we went round at 161, or I did, which, which obviously was changed the next year by Matra when they went back with basically a Formula One car, but with, you know, bodywork on it. And, and, um, when they went what two years ago with that incredible project car from the factory or from BW, that damn thing went round and did not the same track of course. It went round in 150 miles an hour, which is hellishly fast. But that was at Spa, and I was on the big open fast one with barbed bar fences all around it and stuff, and drops down into forests. And nobody ever talked about that. I mean, I've never seen anybody ever write about it. Yeah, of course, the drive that he made at 150 was astonishing, and I couldn't do that, I'm sure. Um, but And he would probably have been able to drive my 917 and do a similar time to me. 
But, you know, um, that was what I did that day. And it was pretty outstanding. When I reflect on it, it didn't mean much at the time. All it meant that I was quickest. I mean, I was quicker. I was, I was two seconds quicker than than uh, Rodriguez and four seconds quicker than X in a round. That's astonishing. And again, it sounds like I'm bragging and I am. But sometimes when I say it to myself, we get so excited about lap times. And I, mean, I was just, I wasn't, I wasn't anything special. I was just a pretty good driver and, you know, get in the right car and everything to, and drive it as fast as you can. And it's quick, you know, but that's what it was like in those days. I mean, there's so many of us were, we're all so alike in our ability, I think. Obviously, somebody that had been there two years more was going to be quicker than you because he had that much more experience. I mean, I'm sure if Jackie X had driven that 917 instead of me, he would have gone quicker. Right. But you just don't know. I remember after I did that, Rodriguez said to me, because I, I was in the other car with Joseph, and Pedro said to me, he said, I think it's time you drive with me, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to be in the car rather than the driver he had. So you, anyway, were, one of, was, you were one of the drivers on the, the film set. Right for, yeah, for Lamont. Absolutely. What was absolutely? What was it about that movie that was so hard to make? Because you look back at the movie and you're like, "Wow, this is amazing! All the cars are great, the the filming is great," but I mean, they lost like tens of scriptwriters, walked off, and didn't. And it doesn't yeah, ever sure, have much absolutely. of a story. What happened? What? Well, I I mean, I think the thing is you have to look at it, um, and I, you know, because we were all disappointed all the time. They had, you say, ten. They had actually. I know at one time they had thirteen different scriptwriters, and one of them was the top. <laughs> motor racing writer and i wish i could remember his name but he sort of he never you know he disappeared off the age of the earth years and years ago but i remember thinking oh well, he'll make it he'll do the good script i think it was so you cannot make a story about a, what, a 24 hour race what are the drivers doing all they do is get out the car exhausted they're hot and sweaty they get out they might be lucky enough in those days we couldn't even shower because there weren't showers we'd either we'd eat a sandwich or we might have you know a glass of Coca-Cola. We're trying to sleep on a crappy bed inside a, an old caravan, as we call it, not a motorhome, but something basic without air conditioning. And um, and then you'd be told to get up and come and drive. And there were two drivers, so you never slept. And you hardly ate. I don't remember eating anything, but I must have done. But we were all so young, you see. Very later on when in the 80s, when suddenly we had catering organized like they have today. And we were looked after, and you could say, you know, what do you want during the race? But in those days, we just drove, got out, or tried to, you know, sort of change, you know, put maybe put dry racing underwear on because it was nasty and wet, or you got wet in the car, you know, in a wet race. Because I mean, I did it 26 times. So you sort of, you know, you, you, you sort of know how to handle the events, as it were. But I mean, it, there was no, certainly no luxuries the way there are now to go and sort of have a sleep somewhere nice. Or some girl picks you up on a golf cart and wishes you off to this to hospitality so you can go in and have a shower and lie in a nice bed somewhere out in the middle of the golf course where there's no noise I mean, it's all so different now right but then that rate racing is different all around whatever you look at i mean look at all the nascar drivers they all have their motor homes there which they probably had the donkey's years but they all sort of go back to their motor homes and relax keep away from people and then come out and go and drive and get back in again that sort of thing do you remember um, what your first impression of the Circuit de la Sarthe was like. Do you remember going there for the first time and driving it and being on the Molson Strait? Was it like, holy shit, this is crazy? Or what was your first impression? Well, it, it's so strange. I don't remember any stark amazement. Um, you know, I think everything was new. You know, I mean, that same year that I drove at Spa, I'd done, I tried to drive at the Nürburgring. 
Um, so I've been there with 172 corners in the rain, you know, and that sort of thing. And then I did the Formula Two race there. It, actually, it was for Ferrari, Formula Two. And and then, and then, and then I went to say for the thousand Ks, and then the Formula Two race, and then we went to Le Mans, which was all before, if I recollect. And Le Mans, of course, you just had that massive straight. Of course, it was more, it was more undulating in the the original track. The straight was still the same length. Um, and of course, as you, you know, somebody always got killed, so you got used to that after a while. And because um, uh, if you went off the road, you zoomed into the trees. Because I mean, it was you know, it was a public property. And um, I don't remember the only thing I remember. Well, I can't say I remember a ton about Le Mans because I lived there virtually. But but was the there was something about when you went to the race there and when you drove in from home, from, you know, coming coming out from England. I nearly always drove that. Only once that I think go by plane. That was when I was with Renault Alpine. Because I was part of the French team and you had to be with them all the time. And, um, but I normally I would drive out and go across the English Channel, with no channel initially, cross the channel, five hour trip on the boat, and then drive down to Le Mans, which is like four hours. You go to your hotel. But I remember the first time you drove into, this is not the actual track. This is part of the scrutineering. And you drove down through this sort of right next to the, the, the cathedral. And you literally would drive in and go like down in, into like a tunnel and then come up because it was all roofed. It was like part of the, the, the buildings around the cathedral. And it would be nearly dark and it was stark. And you'd drive up into the Place de la Republique. And there was the, with the cathedral, which still today is stark and isn't pretty. It's an amazing edifice, but it's not it's not beautiful in so many ways because I didn't like the color of black. And as you drove through, I never forget every time I drove through that bloody tunnel on the way to scrutineering, I'd go, you know, I'm back and I'm going to drive something quicker than I've ever driven before. And I'm going to and uh, I'm going to be driving, not only me, but we, but I'm more worried about me. I'm going to be driving into the unknown. Every time you got on that track, there was something that made the car go quicker. And if you're going to go quicker, you knew that you were one of the cars that was the quickest the world had ever seen, uh, i.e. the 917, which did 246. That was my second year, for God's sake. So, um, you know, having driven the 512 Ferrari, suddenly I'm in a 917 long tail, and we're doing 246. And flat round the kink. And it was very stable. And um, now I reflect on that. I think it must have been bonkers, but... The car was stable. In fact, there was somebody tweeted the other day and said, well, I bet the 917 was unstable. I said, I just remember holding onto the wheel and steering it. I mean, it, it was very easy to drive, but I was lucky because I got in it at the end of the development of that yeah, car. It wasn't always like so, that from what I can hear. It wasn't like that. No, you can talk to everybody but me, and they'll all say Derek's talking out of his ass. But, <laughs> but the fact was, I, I actually didn't drive the bad car. Oh, I did ultimately. I drove it about three years ago, and it was shocking. But... So, um, but yeah, that's another thing. But no, Le Mans is amazing. There's, there's something special. What I love about Le Mans, you know, it's what, six miles, seven miles around, seven and a half miles around. And it's it, to get a fast lap, when you do a lap fast, it's so smooth. Now, it might be because you've been traveling at 246 on the straight, which is only two car widths wide. And then round the kink flat, you have to get the line right, but you take it flat. Now, how do you pick up an entry point at 246 miles an hour. I mean, you, I don't know how many feet per second that is, but it's pretty quick. 
He's certainly quicker than he'd ever been before because it always was every time, as I said. And you you just turn the wheel slightly and you go and you just kiss that white line as you went through the apex. You know? oh, yeah. And you're right every time. Why should we be? The drivers that you know have done it and are good at it um, get the line perfect every time. And you have you have to within a few inches. And um, then the rest of the track seems not, seems somewhat slower. I think that's what it is. So the other corners seem easier because they're all slower than 246. Although it's damn quick down to Indianapolis. And that is actually a 240 mile an hour stretch too. And that has two or three kinks with sort of a bit of a rise up over the apex on two of them. So it's, it, it, it's, it's, that's the tricky part. That's the dangerous part. And they went and put the chicanes in on the Mulsanne Strait because it was four miles long. But they, nobody thought about the road, the bit from, from Mulsanne all the way down to what they call Indianapolis, which is through three right-handers at 230 miles an hour. It's basically as quick as Mulsanne. Uh, but you're going around corners too. <laughs> but um, it's, it's an amazing place. But there's something spectacular. Because when, when you're nearly your, your history of being there is conserving the car. I mean, driving the hell out of it, but not overdriving it. And I think that's why Ix and I and then Holbert and I and the people I drove with, we so rarely had problems because we were so, basically so well matched. Well, I want to talk about Jackie Ix a little bit. And you raced with him mm-hmm. um, with, Mirage, with Mirage there, right? I mean, it, with, with Golf. Right. And uh, yeah. was that, that was your first time racing together, right, as, as a team? Yes, that's so, right. But, but remember, how, going, just before you go on, remember, I had been there with a 917. In seven, and he wasn't. And he had won in 69, I think. And he worked or maybe for 68, too. He drove for John, and I can't remember. But he had driven for them before. They thought he was the best thing since sliced bread. And he really was and is. Uh, he was amazing. His, his mentality, his attitude, his demeanor is, is, is unique in drivers, to me anyway. And he was electrifyingly fast. And he was young. But... Um, he came to, he can't, I'd, I'd been with John Wire since 1971. And John Wire, as I mentioned 20 minutes ago, had asked me to drive for him in 1968 when I joined Ferrari. So he had his eye on me then, John Wire did. And I'd have been in that car possibly if I'd gone recently, because the car I would have driven at Le Mans that year in 68 was the one that Rodriguez won with. And so I would have won the race if I had been fortunate enough to be with Pedro. But anyway, that's beside the point, really. But John Wire wanted me to be in the golf team. And so he got me in the 917. And then, of course, I stayed on. And Howden Ganley did as well. But basically, I did all the majority, not all, majority of the development work of the of the Mirage for like three years. And of course, you know, I, we won at Watkins Glen. We won at Spa. We won at Zeltbeck. We won everywhere we went and then finally, we well, that was a big deal we, for them too because they hadn't won anything since the late fifties. That was huge for that right. company. That was big, but they, they they did a hell of a and they did a hell of a job. But we our budget was terribly tight, and even, even though I say it now, the, the really the car wasn't that special. Um, it was. I mean, the engine was became good and got better as we were allowed to use more power. But I mean, that year we went, you couldn't use the power of the engine because it. You couldn't rev it because it would vibrate, so they had to really change it. Uh, they had to change the setup of the engine to suit them all because of the droning down the straight. Because the Cosworth had a vibration factor in it at a certain number of reps, sort of like an eight, eight or something. And he used to just shudder and shake the bolts out of the engine, out of the chassis. It was terrible. 
Um, so then it's all right when you just when you're accelerating at Silverstone or Watkins Glen and just screaming up the hill or screaming from A to B or turn one to turn two. That's all right. You go up there once, get up the sort of the vibration creeps in and it's gone. But when you went down Mulls Island, you had to go through this this vibration band, you know, for and it took time to go through it because you're droning, you know, pulling 8,300 like this. Because you weren't allowed to, you couldn't use uh, more revs because the engine would, 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 couldn't take it. So it had to be, I mean, we were advised not to go. The head of Keith Duckworth, when John Wire approached him, said, Keith, uh, we're going to go to Le Mans with your engine. What do you suggest? And oh, Keith, with, with his northern accent, said, uh, I wouldn't go if I was you, John. <laughs> you understand what I said? Yeah. And that was what he told us. We still went and we won. Well, so you and Jackie X, that was that was your first teaming up together. How did you end up together again at Porsche? Whose idea was that to put you guys? We were we were at Ferrari together, but we never. I didn't know him that well. Anyway, oh, okay. that was brief. That was brief. Um, and of course, then I saw him over the years because we raced in Formula Two together. In fact, we raced Formula Two in two Dino Ferraris against for Mister Ferrari in Formula Two. And I raced against him when he was in the Matra, and I was in my Brabham before I even went to Ferrari. So I sort of knew of him. And I knew his ability. There were some hellishly fast drivers in those days. And uh, so then, then we did the Ferrari thing, and I say, and then he went off and did what he had to do in, in Formula One. And um, I went off and, and developed the Mirage uh, with, let's say, Adam Gandhi had a go at it. So I don't think Bernschuppen came in at that point. Um, but I mean, I, I lived near Goodwood, so it was very handy for me just to, and I, you know, just to go and do testing whenever we could. And Silverstone. And we had a few laughs. I mean, it was great working for a British team, but I'd never developed a car before, so it was all all a bit new to me. And um, and then, of course, in '74, I finished fourth with Mike Halewood. That was fantastic. And we, you know, we nearly we thought we might blow it up before tea time or dinner time, so we get back for a glass of wine. But it carried on to the end, and we finished fourth. Well, fourth. Whose idea was it to put you with with X in the in the nine in in, in the eighties? Whose idea I was believe, that? I, 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 seventy four, you mean? Seventy five, you mean? Don't you? Well, I'm talking in about the, the like the nine six two era, nine five six. Oh, I see. Well, well, let me finish with how he came to John Wire. He yes. actually contacted John Wire, but Jackie was again. It's all part of the Jackie phenomena. But he was he was very shrewd. He knew exactly where he was going. He he was very intelligent. He was very cool. He was very calm. He didn't upset anybody. He was just an amazing sort of. Um, demeanor he had and he knew what where he, he knew he was bloody quick i mean he was the quickest out there and he knew and he could drive anything i mean that damn race in the mustang at spa he, it was raining and he brian redman was in the race and he came around on the first lap and he was something like three minutes in the lead on the first lap he came through in the mustang and nobody was in sight <laughs> brian redman tells the story it was amazing but um uh he, he actually wrote to John Wire because he realized there wasn't much else out there in those years because really it was a matter of being the best car and, well, where did you go? But there weren't really too many choices. So he um, he came, he said, I'd like to drive with Derek. So that was it. And he was, as I said to some this guy from magazine yesterday, I said, you know, he was so good because he didn't come in as a prima donna because people think he was a prima donna because, in fact, he was a bit shy, I believe. And he didn't really want to talk to people unless he really wanted to and, um, you know, he came in and he never threw his weight around. He never said we should do this, we should do that. 
we would always say to me, what do you think? You know, what, what do you think? Would you like to do the start or do you think I should start? Or, you know, he didn't want to impose on me because I was the number one in the team because, you know, I've been with them for five years. And it was my, you know, basically it was my car, if you know what I mean. I, I built, developed the damn thing. But I didn't expect that treatment from Jackie. But he, it was just great to drive with him. And I le always learned so much from being with him throughout throughout my career. And then, of course, you say going on, you know, we then won with it. I then, I drove with him, against him in the Alfa Romeo team in that same year in 75. Um, I, with Pescarella, won... I think five, four or five races in the world championship from the Alfa Romeo T T33. I mean, what a hell of a car that was. Flat 12 engine car. It was really good and run by a German team because they're the only ones that could really run it and were organized enough. And uh, we won the championship that year. And of course, won Le Mans with the Mirage. So actually, in the end, that being quite a good year. Um, and, and then subsequently, of course, it was like, what are you going to do next? Didn't know. So I drove with, I drove with Jaguar a bit. And I drove Porsche 935s and I drove the 936 uh, in the latter part of the 70s. No, I didn't. I lied. I drove various cars and I was about to quit. In 79, I was going to quit. And out of the blue, I got a call from a guy at the Pink Floyd saying, why don't you come and drive with me? We're going to run a Lancia, one of the Lancia Group 5 cars. And I said, well, I don't know who you are, Steve, but I knew who's the manager of the Floyd. And I, I said, that's the wrong car. You're never... No, I said, I, 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 with my experience, I, I wouldn't suggest you ran a, a factory car, but you're out of the factory team. Either run it within the team or else don't take it on. You're going to have so many frustrating moments. And I was wise. I mean, I was totally correct in what I said. Uh, not, I'm not trying to say one night clever, but I'd been around it, it, I'd been around teams. So, I, you know, I'd been right. there with the Alpha team that I was with. with with Brian, with um, Pescarello and Steve O'Rourke. So, and then I told Steve there was no point in sort of going with Lancia. So we went with BMW and we had it with the M1 and we had quite a good race at Monza. And while I was there, the head of engineering of Porsche said, why didn't you drive for us at Le Mans? And then I ended up driving the Jules car. Now, X was already there. They needed one more driver. And I don't know why I should be so fortunate, but then everything sort of, if it falls into place, it does. And... Um, I was, I say, at Monza driving the M1, and the chief engineer, engineering engineer, Valentin Schaefer, came up and he said, Hey, what are you up to? How are you? Because they all knew me from my 917 runs the year. And, they, and I told him, and then he said, Why don't you drive for us? What are you doing at the morning? I said, I'm driving this M1. And he said, He said, Why don't you, uh, why, did, would you why don't you drive for us? I said, Well, nobody's asked me. <laughs> so I suppose I should have phoned them up. I didn't even know what they were doing at the morning because I didn't read magazines that much. So that was it. So the next day, so the next, that night at dinner, Steve O'Rourke said to me, who was that you were talking to? I said, I'm oh, Schaefer, head of this. I told him the story. And he said, I'd be honored and flattered to think they wanted my driver to drive for them at Lamar. You should drive for them. He then spoke to the head of BMW and the guy said, you've got to let Derek go. He said, he could, he could win Lamar in the Porsche. He'd never win it in this car. So I went to drive with Jackie because he was already in the team. And that's right. And I, phoned, I spoke to Manfred Yanker, the team manager, um, on the Monday, or the, I guess it was the Monday. And I said, oh, I didn't want to lose the drive with, 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 with um, in the M1 or the BMW, as it were, if I, Porsche really didn't want me, cause, just because Valentine Schaefer asked me, didn't mean to say everybody was. So I phoned up Yanka and he said, he said, oh, that's, um, he said, that is wonderful, Derek. 
now you will, now I have the best two drivers in the world. You will drive with Jackie X. And I, I couldn't believe it. I thought they, I thought they'd just put me in the other car, whoever that was. But that was the fourth driver they required. And I'd have been with whoever was in the second car, but I wasn't. I was in the number one car. And this is and back we, when there was two drivers per car, not three, right? Yeah, right. Two to seven, eighty, eighty-four. It was like that. Yeah. Why did they end up going to three? Did it just get? Was it just brutal no, on your body, or? Yeah. Well, I didn't really. <laughs> I must admit, it was a couple of, I did sort of in, the, in that mid-80 period, I was getting out of the car in the night sometimes really exhausted. And I was fit. I mean, you know, I was very fit. But we weren't, have, you know, our diet wasn't very good. And that's, I mean, we weren't being looked after that well, I don't think. And I wouldn't know how Jackie was, because obviously when he got out, I got in the car and off we went. But I remember when, I think, which year was it? Actually, it was the year of 75 when I got out of the car and I stood there and they gave me the trophy with, just about to give me the trophy and I collapsed on the, on the podium. And um, I remember the last words I heard from the guy from Fox television was this man needs help. Mind you, it was, it was because they gave me a bottle of champagne and I was so thirsty and I must have drunk about a gallon of sh- champagne. And that's all you need after 24 hours. And I just went to the floor. Remember, of course, it was my first win. And um, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think how many times I've finished. I finished twice in 24 hours. So I, I wasn't experienced at competing 24 hours um, and went that first time. But by 80, by the 80s, I was, yes. So in the, in the 80s, there's this, the magical run, right, where Porsche won so many races in a row. And, and with yeah. you and Jackie and obviously the great drivers, but there has, there's more to it than that in terms of the success because it's, it's only happened once. And my prediction is with the way motorsports are going, it's never going to happen again. Um, what was it? about that time that drove that success over and over and over again? I don't know. I mean, it's a very good question. Um, And I haven't been asked that question that way. I think you have to realize that um, that everybody had a passion for racing then, and you had great manufacturers in there. And I think that's what it's good. But they were the historic guys i mean you okay porsche i actually don't know which year they started at Le Mans, but they they started back in the very early 60s didn't they maybe late 50s you had um you know maserati you had ferrari you had jaguars in the 50s you had you know mercedes and then gradually mercedes came in with the salvas and then you had nissans and toyotas and mazda but the you had the major manufacturers in there and it sort of, in a way it sort of gradually changed and that you've got sort of people that come in and it's not strictly the car from that factory. I mean, they used to say a win on Sunday, you buy on Monday. And a lot of the cars that you would see on the racetrack were what you could buy on the Monday. And of course it changed and the stuff that I drove you, I mean, initially, yes, you could buy a night. You could, you could buy a 512 Ferrari and go and race, race it on a Sunday or the weekend, win Le Mans, or do well at Le Mans and go, you could drive it home. But um, I think the sort of philosophy about what we went racing for changed slightly over those years. And um, they brought in different rules, and therefore the reasons for it all changed. And I, I believe once you got into three drivers, it, the personality of that team changed. When you had two drivers, 
it was it was better for the two for the three when they became three because you had less time to drive in the car. And I'm not saying the guys today with three drivers drive any any faster or any slower than we did. They all drive possibly faster because they're fitter. But the cars are easier to drive. They don't have to shift gear. They don't have to. They have power steering. They have air conditioning at 72 degrees in their helmet, and all this sort of thing. And it or in the cockpit of the car. It it has dramatically changed. And I'm not saying I wanted to do it, but I used to love to have more air. I mean, we used to put our hand up against the air vent to get it to come in onto our faces, you know. And we were hotter than hell nowadays. And, and, and nowadays it's so much more, you know, insulated. But it's not answer, not totally answering your question. But Maybe it's, it's just the amount of sacrifice and what you had to put in it because of the sacrifice that you were making. So what you're putting in is is more. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. But the fact was, we only did what our for, for our forefathers had done. I mean, you just look back over the years that I could before me, long before I even probably saw a race car, a Le Mans. They all had two drivers, and they make that that, and they were driving twenty four hours. And when you look at those old bloody old blower Bentleys, which I drive from time to time, and you and I've driven them at Le Mans in the classic, you go, these blokes, they drove these bloody trucks. I mean, no power steering. I mean, I ruined my shoulders driving that blow of Henry. And it's only through, through having the pandemic this summer, this year that I've managed not to use my shoulders for driving one in, in a couple of rallies in Europe. But my shoulders actually come back and actually I can play golf again. <laughs> and I thought that would never happen. Because I could only lift my hands above my head. Now I can, I can do push-ups in the morning, which I haven't been able to do because I haven't been tearing them apart, driving these bloody great cars. Now... The race cars I drove with, you know, the 962s, the 956s, we didn't have power steering. I actually never, that I'm aware of, drove, and maybe the McLaren had power steering when in 95, possibly did, yeah. 94, 95, 96, then the GT, GT, GT1. Um, maybe that did, the F1 car, as it was called. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I, I think it's just changed. Motor racing has changed. The fan base has changed quite a lot. I mean, we, can you imagine? We never had publicity back in our era. And people used to say, how do you get out over the weekend? And I'd say, well, I won. And I got back to England. Really? They didn't damn well know I'd won them all. But as time's gone on, it's become so much more of a, of a sort of a news item who wins the big races because you've got the, the, the commercial side of the people pushing it. Yeah, well, you I can mean, be leveraged a lot more than you could before. That's right, yeah. So um, I, I, don't, I don't know... The difference between the two, and I don't know that I envy them what they've got now. Um, it's rather, I think what we have now in motorsport generally is um, is totally different to what we had. I mean, going if I go back over my career, it was pretty much the same throughout my career. Um, we, I mean, we never had simulators at any point during my career. I mean, some dick would say, hey, come and have a go on a simulator. Well, I mean, all it was is really is like a ride at a fun fair. There's nothing relevant or relative to what we did in a race car or any car for that matter. And now they are absolutely amazing. And I've driven a couple. I detest driving them because I just, I just think it's, you know, it's, it's not the real thing. If you're going to drive, drive the real thing or else don't bother. But I can see why they use it because it makes a bloke learn you know, these new tracks they go to, particularly in Formula One. But they're all using the simulators. They can always drive them, set, what, set up one at home if they're serious. The point, I think the big, the big difference between the two eras, my life and what's out there in the last 20 years, 15 to 20 years, is the fact that we could go off and have a day job. 
we could go off and go somewhere. I mean, I was commuting backwards and forwards to America from 19, from 80, right the way through to, you know, mid 90 to 2000, backwards and forwards across the Atlantic, sort of between races. And, you know, I mean, not, I mean, you know, I was doing the, the, the races here with Al Holbert. And of course I had the place in Florida then. So I spent a bit of the winter here, but um, you still had the raid race. The other races were in Europe, but once the race was over, that was it. We weren't required for anything. I mean, you know, we used to go to Le Mans and on the Friday, which was the free, the day off, because you practice or qualify Wednesday and Thursday, the evening, Friday was free. And so you'd have, a, you'd be up till anyway, one o'clock in the morning on the Thursday night because of qualifying up till then. You then drive back the 25 miles to your hotel and there'd be some food laid out if you wanted beautiful French food, a bowl of soup or whatever, which you'd have and some prosciutto and salad or whatever you wanted. Then you go to bed. You didn't really have to get up until midday on the Friday. Uh, but you'd get up and have a late breakfast and then you'd go off into the forests and meet friends and have a lovely lunch. And then you'd go and see the team and you'd, they would talk to you over the sort of, the, the you know, if you because you've been there every day anyway. <clears throat> but then you'd discuss probably some race tactics and they'd show you where this tool was or this spanner was, or this component, if you had to change it was, which thank God saved me a couple of times. And then, uh, you know, you, you say you'd um, go back and go to your hotel and go to have an early dinner and go to bed at 7.30 at night. And you'd sleep and sleep and sleep as much as you could, if you'd actually get to sleep, it is. And then in the morning, you didn't have to be at the track till midday, because the race was at four. Now those poor devils, on a Friday, they're flat out from one sponsor to another. I, Tom Christensen showed me, you know, where he had to be on that Friday. And I'm going, you know, the great, we didn't have all that nonsense. I mean, I know the sponsors are vital, but to me, I think the drivers, well, they don't, so I guess they don't complain. Maybe we, I, I, I thought it was pretty tough going, Lamar. Maybe it was easier now than it was. I, you know, I don't think they'd agree, but whatever it is, and there were two of us, admittedly, so that could give us another six or eight hours in the car, I have to admit, which actually, when you think about it, is, a, you know, five hours each more. It's pretty hard work. Well, before I get into some uh, of the final questions, I just want to ask you about um, yeah. 1988, which was an incredible yeah. year. You guys did 394 laps, which at the time was the second most ever. I mean, it was just yeah. just incredible. You guys were pounding that down. Uh, but things uh, ended up with a huge disappointment as Klaus Ludwig had to limp the car into the pits early, yeah. causing you guys to yeah. basically lose on the final lap to the yes. to the silt-cut Jaguar, which ended yeah. Porsche's seven-year reign at Le Mans. What, we heard from Klaus what happened. I'm just wondering what your story is on what happened and with the with the car and and how things ended up well i i listened to klaus's um sort of uh, you know um his dissertation just now um it is intriguing and none of that really i relate to um i the point is when something goes wrong you don't really pay much attention i mean you do but there's no point it was nothing to do with me the team have enough problems trying to get the car going and get it back out there again and get on summing up where we are what time we've lost etc 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 so they don't want the driver coming up to the team manager saying oh excuse me what went wrong what did i do or, it's all done it's all happened you can't you can't you know correct it you've, you've screwed whatever happened is is a cock up if the engine had a you know something or a shock absorber broke they changed the shock absorber don't ask why it broke um just accept they put a new one on and the same with this whatever it was and all i know is the fact that as far as i was aware um, I don't even know who was getting in the car next, to be honest. It, it, no, I think it might have been Stuckey because I used to go Bell, uh, Stuck or Stuck Bell, one or the other, uh, depending who started. 
And uh, we Stuck and I used to alternate who it was. But all I can tell you is that he, um, as far as I know, he tried to do an extra lap on a tank. He he didn't see the fuel light. He didn't know that the he was he didn't go on to reserve. Now they said that if you went on to reserve at the any time place after Arnage Corner, which is what two miles back up the road, you come in. If it come if if it comes in as you get towards the chicane, it's too late. You've got to get round another lap, but you have to come in if it if it starts the misfire and you go onto the onto the onto the reserve pump, and the reserve pump will get you in. The reserve pump, in fact, would do a lap, but it would only get you from the chicane back to the pits. It wouldn't get you from halfway from Menage to the pits and go round another lap. If you follow me, yep. it was just enough to get round. And um, all I know is, I don't know what laps he did. I was just led to believe, because again, I know when it was Stuffy. I know we were disappointed. Um, and all I, all I have ever said was, all I've understood was that he tried to do an extra lap. And I, we all went, well, how the hell didn't he see the light? Well, maybe he just thought he could get round because he, he thought he might. I don't know. I mean, when I heard his story just now, what, which was fun because he, he sort of he, well, no, it wasn't fun. It was rather sad, really. But uh, he he uh, and I get on very well with him. Whenever I see him, he comes up and he says, "Derek." Uh, even in the last year at Rensport, he said, "And I always, if I saw, him, I say, hey, Klaus, how are you?'" It's all forgotten now, for God's sake. I mean, we forgot it after the race, but it would have been nice to have won that extra time. Um, but it's the only time we ran with three drivers. You know, it was with him. <laughs> And until we brought Al Holbert in, um, and of course with Al we had won it twice. So you know, makes you wonder. We'd won in '86. Look, Al and I had won '86 Daytona. We then with Stuck won our, we won Le Mans, and then we went back the next year and won Daytona again with a third driver. We came back with Stuck and did Le Mans, and the next year we went back in '88, and of course in '88 um, we had the problem of running out of fuel. So it makes you wonder, all those times we drove the 962, we never had a problem with it before. But I don't know all Klaus is going on about this and that and the other and the it, fuel. It definitely, uh, it definitely obviously he, haunts him, for sure. I mean, yes, it, it was, wasn't it? I, I never had any like it. When he sees me, as I think, he just apologizes, even now. He said, last in Rensport two years ago, smiles and he comes out and looks really fit and well. And he said, hi, Derek. He said, I just never get over that. I'm so sorry I let you guys down. That was his words. I mean, he was really a super driver. So I don't know. So one more, one more kind of concept, and then, yeah. and then we'll let you go. And on, on a serious note, racing, as we all know, was, was significantly more dangerous back then. You've alluded to it several times. And especially when you were racing Formula One in the late 60s with this open wheel stuff with no arrow and, yeah. you know, whatever. And looking at your race history, I know I can see the people that you've driven with. You've lost friends. Um, how do you, after you've lost somebody, how do you get in the car and drive again? With Because it's this constant reminder of death. And mm -hmm. it's everywhere, you know, especially back in the day. How do you justify getting back in the car? Why is it worth it? Well, that's that's very true. Um, I guess the thing would be that in those early days, we weren't such good friends because there were so many people aspiring to be great, be good from Formula 3, Formula 2 onwards. Because of that, um, you didn't know people because you didn't race against them often. 
and you never got close to people because of that factor that you're mentioning. We never talked about it, but it was sort of an almost an unwritten thing that you wouldn't have a, you probably wouldn't have a close relationship with with another driver because for that one reason. But we never talked about it. Obviously, when something happened, it was tragic. But you didn't. I mean, you know, as as, as dear old Jackie Stewart said, he said, "I got fed up. We're going to. I got fed up. We're going to funerals," and we had quite a lot of that, as you can imagine. But nobody really was was that close, like a close friend, because you always kept yourself apart as, from knowing people. It's only nowadays that we seem to get closer. Uh, I think because maybe there's more races, so therefore you're with people more. Um, and also, of course, there's fewer fewer bad accidents, thank goodness. And therefore, it doesn't happen as frequently. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you get stunned by accidents um, when they happen. But, you know, they don't happen as frequently these days, thank goodness. But I remember when somebody somebody had a bad accident in, in IMSA one year and everybody was in tears. And I well, I was this upset as well. And I couldn't tell you who it was, but I remember saying, in American racing, they're so used to the sort of the, the family thing. You've got to remember, NASCAR have 38 races a year. They're all the same group going around and around and around. It's like a, it's like a circus. It's the same, same group of people. So when somebody gets hurt or so on, uh, it's a major thing. In our racing, you know, uh, you wouldn't get that close to people. You're not with them every week. You never do 38. I never did 38 races in my life in a year. Uh, you know, you're only doing sort of, I, most I did was sort of 25, 26, but I was driving in three series to do that. I was doing IROC, I was doing the World Championship, and I was doing the IMSA. And so you're driving with different drivers and you didn't get to know them as closely. But I mean, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I would get upset. Of course I'd get upset. I mean, um, but, and how, and why or how I did it, why I got back in the car again, I could never tell you. Because once that flag drops, you never, you don't think anymore. You just drive. And what is it about that racing and that and seeking that win and being faster than every other man? Um, why does it? Why does it? Like, ma- why does it matter for us? Oh, well, yeah, but it's the same as any anything, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's like you know, it could be girls in the Olympics, it could be men in the Olympics. It's soccer versus I know men playing soccer or rugby or American football. They want to win. They like to be a winner. Um, all right, you know, in a car, it's it's dangerous, but overlooking the danger side of it, it's just the competition, and it's getting the most out of that car. Um, that's I think that's the difference. I mean, we just want to get the the maximum out of it, and it, then it's doing that maximum every single lap. I mean, there are a lot of guys that could do a lap, a wonderful lap, but they couldn't repeat it. But it's being able to do it lap after lap after lap. Mr. Bell, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. That's all right. Thank you for your questions. And I do recognize you, by the way. I saw your photo. <laughs> <laughs> I just figured you had a bunch of photos, uh, you know, taken with you that at, at the time. But yeah, it was it was interesting hearing That's you it. and Jackie Hicks talk that day. It was great. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, okay. Take, see you again. Yeah, we'll see you around sometime. Okay. Yeah. Who knows when? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, well, all right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What an incredible career and what an incredible man. And, uh, it's amazing what's striking to me is just all the different events and cars that he just casually refers to and is expansive. I know I, know. I had to like history. stop I'm myself. Like, Wait a minute. I, I have to get through these the, the itinerary that I have and I have questions and things I want to know. 
and he's saying like, yeah, Jim Clark. And I'm like, oh my God, I want to know what it was like to be around Jim Clark and race with him and, and see him and be on track and with him. And he drove a 935. Yeah. Drove- well, what was it like to drive the 935? I wanted to be like, God, ah, you tested the, <laughs> you were testing at Hockenheim in the 917. I know you were because yeah. I heard the story yeah. of how you almost, a, a bicyclist drove over the track right in front of you. Like Jeez. I re- I've heard that story. And I want to hear it again, but I can't ask because I want to also talk about these other things. And, you know, that's... Yeah, it's just amazing to think of such a career and how much there is packed into that and just how many experiences he has. Well, what else have you got for us, Jake? Ober Car Care is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are passionate about detailing and know firsthand what it takes to make a good product. They're truly great products. I love it. It's simple. It's foolproof. Usually it's a two-step process is what I've used from them, and it's easy and gives amazing results. Right now, they actually have offered a 20% off coupon for use with your next order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only at obercarcare.com, but also detailedimage.com and also carsupplieswarehouse.com. Please go check those guys out. You know what's going to be insane is when we're finally allowed to hang out with each other again and we're finally (laughs) allowed to have events and we're able to go and see the historic races and stuff like that. It is going to be the most pleasure delay explosion (laughs) of vintage awesomeness you've ever seen in your life. Everybody's going to be there. All the cars are going to be there. It is going to be like Car Week 2021 if if we're allowed to hang out with each other. That's or even 2022, whatever. It's going to be the biggest and the best ever. And I and I hope everybody listening goes. I look forward to seeing everybody again, hanging out at the vintage races and real races. And not the vintage races are real. Down with Derek Bell himself and maybe talk in depth about some of these things. Yeah. Well, they always do. if you're pressed and you have credentials, you can always go to these things where um, I went to the one and I listened. I actually posted up a video on uh, for our Patreons of yes. the interview. And I asked a few questions of of Derek and Jackie. Uh, like, what was it like with the 917? Did you, you know, did you prefer it with turbo, without turbo? And just like these great stories that come out of this stuff and seeing Derek Bell and Jackie X sit, sit right next to each other was awesome. And that was the moment when I realized I'm like, oh, my God. I've got my Jackie X steering wheel in my car. I should have Jackie X sign it. And then I went booking off to get my chaos ensued. And then chaos ensued. And I couldn't, and then the line was too long and I never got to, you know, eventually it happened. Like as, as you know, the, the CEO of, of of Porsche took it to Jackie and had him sign it for me, which is like so cool. cool. And sitting right there, it's on the other side of that curtain. (laughs) Oh no, it's behind you. It's right over there. Ah, there I can't even use it anymore. The J is like half worn out from my, you don't want to, for my 4,000 mile road trip on the way home of uh from from having it anyway uh many thanks to uh mr bell for coming and hanging out with on the podcast it was it was truly our honor and we will see you guys on uh on friday with another news episode and i don't even know what we're gonna do on monday i guess i should probably figure that out i got ideas too you got ideas it's gonna be something great it's gonna be great thanks for tuning in guys we'll see you on friday monday friday 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 Friday. this is monday friday take care